Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and find James chapter 5. We are going to wrap up our study on the book of James today. As you're looking for James chapter 5, go ahead and make sure that you've signed that roll sheet at your table. That'd be really helpful for us as we do attendance. Um, James chapter 5. Now, I really do hope that this summer has been a time where you've been reminded week in and week out of the gospel. You've been reminded of the need for wisdom. You've been reminded of the need to watch your speech and what we say and how we say it and more. And today, in our last passage, we come to what is probably one of the trickier passages of the New Testament. Now, James chapter 2, where he talks about faith and works being dead and faith without works being dead, is also a very tricky passage. But uh, the title of my message this morning is just a tough text. Uh, This is a tough text because we're trying to think about what is James saying and what does he mean, right? So we need to understand what he's saying, but we also need to understand what does he mean by that? And so uh, we are going to get left with, if we're, if we're not careful, uh, some expectations uh, and maybe some lack of experience that's going to disorient us to what it looks like to really be faithful to this text. But if we understand the text as I think it ought to be understood, I pray that it would be encouraging and motivating and, and perhaps the right kind of challenging for us. So, I pray that we'll leave our time together with some clarity and some confidence regarding what the Lord has for us. So let's read just two verses to get us started. First, uh, verses uh, 13 and 14 of James chapter 5, and we'll, we'll dig in together. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. You gave your only son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation of our sins, to take away our debt, to bear the wrath of God against sin, so that we might have life instead of death, righteousness instead of unrighteousness, freedom instead of slavery. And because we have been given this life in Jesus, we now have access to the throne of grace, access to the Father by the Holy Spirit, so that when we pray, you hear us and you delight to give your children good things. Lord, we know from this book, the book of James in James chapter one, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That's you. And so we pray, oh good God, that today, this morning, you would meet us where we are in our great need with your great provision. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us, show us the truth of your word by your spirit. Help me to teach with clarity and power and help us to receive it in such a way that we're renewed in our minds and strengthened in the inner man. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, we need to talk about our life. And uh, what James gives us in these two verses, I think, is is enough to do a whole sermon, but we have to keep going. But uh, the first point this morning is just, we need to think about the lyrics of life. It's kind of how I'm thinking about it as I was preparing this week, the lyrics of life. James, remember, he recognizes his audience. So just so that we're all on the same page, James is writing to believers who are dispersed 
throughout the Roman Empire, dispersed throughout a world that does not love them or the God that they worship. That means that suffering is inevitable. You live in a world that doesn't love you and doesn't honor and love the God that you worship. Suffering is bound to come. That same audience, however, has all the reason in the world to rejoice. Why? Because they were lost and now they're found. They were blind, but now they see. They were wandering in the darkness, but now they live in the light as children of light. And yet, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their joy, those same believers are not immune from the natural evil of a broken world like sickness and illness. So what is James's prescription? What is his remedy? What is his offering for suffering for joy and for sickness? What is it that you can have in every circumstance of your life? Speak to God. That's James's response. Are you sick? Are you suffering? Are you cheerful? Speak to God. Pray to him in the suffering. Praise him in your cheerfulness. Call out to him in your infirmity and invite others to do the same. The lyrics of our life, in other words, ought to be communion with God. If we become believers, if we trust in Jesus by faith, we have what's called union with Christ. We are united to him by faith. We're connected to him by that faith now and forevermore. And that's a static, eternal, unchanging reality. But our union with Christ is distinct from our communion with him. Just to use an illustration, Whitley and I are married, right? We are husband and wife. We've entered into a covenant commitment, and that's not changing. I'm not more married now than I was 10 years ago. But my communion, my relationship with my wife is dynamic. There might be days where everything seems to be going awesome, where we're on the same page, where we're joyful and enjoying life and Abe is sleeping through the night and everything is wonderful. But there may be days where I'm frustrated and she's tired and I'm not listening clearly. And so our communion is dynamic. It shifts. It waxes and wanes. It rises and falls. And it's the same with our relationship with Christ. Our union with Christ as believers is unchanging, but our communion with him is dynamic. He speaks to us by his word, and communion invites us to speak back in prayer and praise. So what James is saying is that different circumstances in your life do not change the call that you have to be in communion with God to speak to him, to praise him, to cry out to him. There's never a bad time to seek the Lord in prayer. There's never a bad time to worship him. Now, this takes us all the way back to the beginning of James's letter. You don't have to turn there, but in James chapter one, he says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. So again, what James is saying at the very beginning of the letter is, when you suffer, and I know you will, you should rejoice. 
Because in the suffering and in the joy, God is doing something in you to produce a kind of perfection. Not a perfection that's sinlessness that we can attain in this life, but a kind of maturity or completeness or fulfillment. We can count our sufferings and trials as joy when we bring them before the Lord. So I don't know how the first few days of school has hit you. I mean, maybe you're ecstatic. Maybe it's like new year, fresh start. You love your classes. Your teachers are great. You're excited about the new year. Or maybe you're in dread. Like maybe you did not have a good week. Maybe things were hard for you. Or maybe you're somewhere in between. Or maybe your thoughts are consumed with something completely different. Maybe your mind is set on something at home or something at work for our older students who have jobs, or maybe it's between another friend. No matter what's going on or where you're at, here's what James says. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus and talk to him. Bear your soul to him. And if the need arises, bring others in on where you're at. The sick person here is told to call on the elders, the pastors who can then pray over him. And James also references anointing with oil, and that's not something that we normally do or practice, although you may have uh, instances or experiences where somebody has anointed someone with oil. Three things to keep in mind when we have that picture given to us in Scripture. First, oil was kind of a basic medicine in those days. So it made sense that if you're not feeling well, well, let's anoint him with oil. Second, anointing with oil is an image of being set apart for the Lord. So priests would be anointed with oil to set them apart as people devoted to the Lord. And when I'm sick, there's a practice here to anoint me with oil, to set me apart, to say, Lord, I need you in a, in a very peculiar, very clear, explicit way. And third, and I'll put this on the screen, Psalm 133, verses one and two, the love of the people of God is described this way. The psalmist says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. That's so timely. Running down the collar of his robes, right? So the psalmist has this picture in mind of, of the love of brothers and sisters in the Lord is a blessing like being anointed with oil, so as we think about making our faith practical, as we come to a conclusion in James, we need to remember that the lyrics of our life and the, the song that should be playing in our mind should be the words of prayers and praises to the Lord. And as we see further in this text, we're going to understand maybe in greater measure the power of this kind of prayer. So let's read, starting in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. 
So this just continues what James is saying in verse 14, right? If anyone's among you is sick, let him call on the elders. So from verses 14 to 18, I want us to see the power of prayer this morning. Now I told you, this is a tough text. And if, and if we're not careful, just kind of a cursory reading of what we just read, it sounds like if someone in front of me is sick, I can pray for them. And if I have enough faith, they're going to be healed right then. But that presents a problem because uh, an understanding of prayer that's almost magical in its effectiveness is not the pattern of prayer that I think any of us has experienced, nor do we know anyone whose regular rhythm of prayer is met with this kind of regular, miraculous production. So have we seen miraculous things happen connected to the prayers of believers? Absolutely. I have stories, I'm sure you have stories, of seeing God work in unbelievable ways through the prayers of the saints. But these are considerably rare occurrences. So what do we make of James giving this principle and command to the church, to the people of God, as though this should be kind of the normative pattern? Well, first, we need to remember to read this passage in light of James's whole letter and not in isolation. So just a few verses before in chapter 4, James made an important note about the Lord's will. So look at, look at just flip maybe a page behind to James chapter 4, or maybe at the top of the page it is for me, and verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So our prayers of faith, according to James, are in the context of if the Lord wills. Ultimately, our prayers are not magic. They are cries to the God who rules and reigns. The power, so to speak, is not in prayer itself, but to the one whom we pray to. And when our prayers for healing don't get answered the way we might expect, this is not an indication that prayer fails or that our prayer has failed, or that we're not good enough, or that we don't have enough faith. We need to remember that. Second, we need to notice that the sickness in this passage seems to be related to sin. Now, the language overlaps to make this connection. Look again at verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And then look at verse 16. Confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed. So the sinner, the, the, the sick person is saved, the sinner is healed. Normally the sick are healed and the sinners are saved. Right? And that's kind of usually how we would make that connection. But James is jumbling up these words. He's saying, no, 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 the sinner is going to be healed. The sick person is going to be saved. 
So what is he doing here? I think he's showing us that this sickness in particular is the result of or contributed to by sin. Now, we need to be clear. Sickness in your life and in my life is most usually the result of broken bodies living in a broken world. So we ought not to default our thinking to sin when we're unwell. When you get a cold, your first thought it should not be, what have I not repented of? That's not what I'm saying. I had a, I had a friend in college who um, her parents were wild into like pagan mysticism and new age spirituality and like just totally on board with this idea of like positive thinking being like the thing that changes your life. And I just have this clear memory of her coming back from a break, just kind of struggling. And her name was Faith, ironically. And I said, Faith, what's wrong? And she goes, well, I've just been sick for like the last week. And I went home for the long weekend. And like the first thing my parents said were, what lies are you believing that you're still sick? You're not sick. And it crushed her because she's like, I, I don't know what to tell them. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I, I don't, I just, I'm just not feeling well. And I'm like, Faith, you could just have a bug. Like, you might just be sick. So, so hear me when I'm saying, I don't think James is saying that you should automatically be skeptical of your integrity or, or skeptical of where you are in accounts with the Lord and your sin if you ever get a cough. But there is a time to consider it. Paul calls out the Corinthians on this. So we'll see 1 Corinthians 11 on the screen. Let a prayer, this is, the context is uh, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy or an unworthy manner. So doing something as the Lord intended or in a sinful way. And he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So Paul seems to believe in 1 Corinthians 11 that there's a kind of sinful behavior that is met with a kind of discipline from the Lord that looks like illness and even death. And so I think what James is doing is he's saying, if you're sick in a way that you might think is connected to a pattern of sin or connected to your integrity, then it makes sense that you would involve your pastors. It makes sense that you would involve the elders. It makes sense that you would reach out to those in authority over you spiritually to say, look at my life, see what's going on, help me understand where I am. This is why sins are being forgiven in connection to this prayer for healing. Not because a pastor or a church member can look at you and say, oh yeah, I've forgiven your sins. We don't have that power. But if sins are confessed and brought to light in the midst of this instance, then we can trust that the God who heals is also the God who forgives. And notice this kind of prayer is not just for elders. James says, therefore, confess to one another. We don't just go to a pastor to deal with our sins. We prayerfully go to one another. So, so you and I go to one another when we are burdened by our sin 
and be honest with one another to say, hey, here's where I'm struggling, or here's what I've done, or can you help me in this, or you go to them. But before you immediately start thinking about the people around the room and say, who could I go to to talk about my struggles? Who, who could I go to to talk about my weaknesses and my sins? Who, who could I go to in this room among my peers, or maybe among my table leaders or among people in this ministry, consider this comment by Sam Albury. It's going to be on the screen. He says, we, wait for it. He says, we also need to be those to whom others would feel able to confess their sins. It's worth asking my, yourself, are you someone others would find approachable? Are you known to be trustworthy and sensitive? Would a good friend at church be wise to share a painful and shameful sin with you? Would you know how to respond and how to pray for them? Or would you excuse or belittle the sin or condemn the confessor? If, as James instructs, we are to confess our sins to one another. We must do all that we can to help create the kind of culture in our churches that makes this possible so that it becomes a normal part of church life. In other words, don't let this text get you off the hook and think, I need to go to somebody else and I need to find somebody else. That's important. That's true. But I think the weight of this might need to fall on you, not in a crushing way, not in a way that makes you feel guilty about how we all don't measure up, but it is instructive for us to think, am I the kind of person that someone could confess their sins to and feel safe? Am I the kind of person that they can go to with their struggles and trust that I'm not going to go blabber about it to other people, that I'm not going to meet them with condemnation, that I'm going to know how to respond in that moment. Now, for a lot of us, listen, the, the reality is this, we, we grow in this. We're not naturally good at this. So if you kind of take an evaluation of what Albury just said, and you go, man, that's not me. Well, that's okay. Let's grow in this together. Let's grow as the kind of people who might receive confession well. Now, James gives an example of the power of prayer for us at the end of this section with Elijah. Elijah, a unique prophet in the story of the Old Testament, a man who was like you and me. So on the one hand, unique, surrounded by miraculous works of God, but also a sinner himself who believed in God's promise. And his prayers were powerful. He gives you the story in 1 Kings 17 and 18, that, that when Elijah prayed, the rain stopped for three and a half years, the weather was affected. That is powerful. And then he prayed again, and the weather changed again, and the rains came. So with the, the example of Elijah, here's some encouragement and a challenge. The encouragement is you have the same access to the God of heaven as Elijah, right? Elijah didn't stop the rain. God did, but Elijah prayed. 
And you have the same access to that God that Elijah did. You can pray in faith. Things really do happen when we pray. Prayer really does matter. But now the challenge. If God immediately answered your biggest prayers today, what would change? Like if God immediately answered all of the big things that you've been praying for, all of the, the circumstances that you've been lifting up in your time with him, what would happen? Like I was challenged by this this week. That I think often my prayers are too small. And if I'm honest, it's because I struggle to believe that they really matter that much. I mean, I pray for kind of the normal things. I pray for my family. I pray for my son. I pray for my wife. I pray for the ministry. I pray for our church. But am I praying things that are indicative of my confidence, not in me, but in God? I mean, I recognize that my prayers are to be aligned with God's will. So, so what things do I know about God's will that I can pray alongside in faith and with boldness? confident that he hears and trusting his wisdom. We don't pray big prayers for our own sake. We don't pray big prayers for our own glory, but for the Lord's renown in the world and for the good of those around us. So, so let, me, let me challenge you that maybe this semester, maybe today, maybe this week, we think of some big things to pray for. I mean, why don't we pray that God might bring revival to Auburn? Why, why don't we pray that, that your school might have some encounter with the gospel that leaves it completely changed? Why don't we pray in faith that he might use us or brothers and sisters from other churches to be faithful witnesses in such a unique and powerful way that it's noticed and things happen? So let's pray big prayers together. Now, James gives us one more thing, then he's done, and so are we. And we'll give you some time to talk about these things. Look at verse 19 and 20. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The tough text continues to be tough. Whoever brings him back from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What is James talking about? Well, to make it our third point, I think he's talking about the responsibility of the redeemed. The responsibility of the redeemed. James calls out to my brothers, he says. These believers have a responsibility to one another, and so do we. We are to be vigilant for the sake of our brothers and sisters. If anyone wanders from the truth, we go get them. Notice how he says this. Straying from the truth leads to death. Wandering from the truth leads to death. So a wanderer from the truth is wandering away from life. So we who are close by to maybe some acquaintances or even some friends, if we consider them, 
who notice the changes in that friend or acquaintance, who miss seeing them because they've stopped coming to church or they've stopped coming around as often or the conversations that you have with them have changed or their interests have changed. We have a responsibility to go to them in love and compassion. We share the goodness of the gospel. We share the gift of repentance. We do all that we can empowered by the Spirit and praying for His provision to, as James says, bring them back. And what this tells us, what this shows us, is that the Lord uses means to accomplish His purposes. So you have a friend who used to be really faithful and used to be at church all the time or used to be talking to you about spiritual things or you would have conversations with them about the Bible and that kind of just dropped off the map. And you pray, God, I just really wish that you would take you know, Jordan's heart and, and grip it and, and bring him back to faithfulness to you, or bring him back to church or help him to be going to a church that preaches the gospel and, and, and that's it. What James is saying is, you, know, you, you pray, you pray that God would do those things and then you go have a conversation, you go talk, you go initiate, you go interact with them. You bring them back. Because the Lord uses means like you and me in both the salvation of sinners and in the preservation of his people. And your faithfulness might be the means that he chooses to use. Now, we know that the scripture is clear. We do not save sinners. Jonah proclaims this. Salvation is of the Lord. So so you and I do not have the power, the capacity to save sinners. Salvation is from the Lord, but we can save them from physical death. We can call out to them to come back to the truth. We can work to bring them out of a trajectory that would lead to a multitude of sins. We can bring them to Jesus, who really is the Savior and the Redeemer. So as we begin the school year, look around. Not necessarily in this room, but look around in your life. Because there may be people who were once here who aren't anymore. Maybe you see them and they're wandering from the truth. Let's pray the Lord might give us all the wisdom and the boldness to do what we can to bring them back. And that's, that's part of why next week we're going to start a school year-long study in the book of Acts. That God has seen fit to empower his people with his spirit to be faithful witnesses of the gospel here, there, and everywhere. And if you know enough about the gospel to believe it, doesn't mean that you have been equipped all that you could be. Doesn't mean that you don't have more to learn, you don't have more to grow. But it does mean that you're a follower of Christ. It does mean that you're a minister of reconciliation. It does mean that you're an ambassador of the kingdom of God. It does mean that you're a a part of the family of God. It does mean that you've been given a great commission. And so I'm going to pray. And hopefully in the next few moments, we'll spend some time thinking about the power of prayer in our lives, the lyrics of our life of prayer and praise and the the responsibility that we have to go, not just to the lost, yes, to the lost, but to those who we know and have once thought to be faithful. 
and to bring them back from wandering from the truth. 